This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Most endocrinologists focus on the level of corticosteroids circulating in the bloodstream when treating conditions like the rare endocrine disorder Cushing syndrome. Sparrow Pharmaceuticals believes it's active intracellular steroids that are primarily responsible for causing toxicity in patients. It's developing therapies that target HSD-1, the key regulator of active intracellular steroids. We spoke to David Katz, founder and chief scientific officer of Sparrow Pharmaceuticals, about the company's efforts to develop an HSD-1 inhibitor to treat Cushing's syndrome, how it works, and why this has the potential to address the unmet needs of patients with endogenous Cushing's syndrome. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. Glad to be here. We're going to talk about Cushing disease, corticosteroid biology, and Sparrow's efforts to develop a new therapy for the condition. For listeners not familiar with Cushing's disease, what, what is it? Yeah, so Sparrow is actually developing drugs for three different conditions. So one is Cushing's syndrome, of which Cushing's disease comprises a substantial majority, probably about 70 or 80%. So Cushing's syndrome is a condition in which a patient has a tumor that either secretes a large excess of the hormone cortisol or through a series of molecular events causes uh, them to secrete uh, a large amount of cortisol. And, and cortisol is, the, uh, is one of the body's main stress hormones. And at normal levels, it's involved in the regulation of a whole lot of physiological processes. So it can be things that are pretty much invisible to us, like um, our ability to metabolize sugars and fats uh, or our blood pressure. Uh, it also um, in some ways regulates our mood, our cognition, our ability to sleep. So cortisol is one of the things that wakes you up in the helps wake you up in the morning. Uh, it's not just caffeine. Um, and it also, for example, helps keep your eyeball round because it helps regulate the pressure of, of the liquid uh, in the eye so that, uh, so that you can see. Uh, but in excess, it can cause all of those things to go awry. So you can have, um, you can wind up having excess blood sugar 
which is diabetes, uh, excess cholesterol and triglycerides, um, high blood pressure, uh, deficits in cognition, mood swings, um, inability to sleep well, uh, and uh, increased pressure in the eye, which is glaucoma, uh, as well as you know other effects like it makes your bones brittle, it makes your muscles, and it can make your muscles and skin atrophy. So really pretty bad all around. And uh, patients with, uh, with Cushing syndrome um, often show all, many or all of those uh, symptoms. And the, the distinction between Cushing's disease and Cushing's syndrome is that Cushing's disease is specifically a tumor on the pituitary, which is a, a gland that is just at the base of your brain. Um, whereas Cushing's syndrome more broadly includes not only pituitary tumors, but also tumors that are in other places uh, in the body. Um, the other two conditions that uh, we study are actually much more common. Uh, so autonomous cortisol secretion uh, is also caused by uh, a tumor that uh, secretes excess cortisol. In this case, it's on a gland uh, that's called the adrenal, which sits on top of your kidney. So adrenal, uh, literally um, from Latin, is on top of the kidney. Um, and that is, the, that is the gland that normally secretes cortisol uh, in our bodies. But when there's a, a tumor, sometimes uh, it excretes too much. Um, the cortisol excess in adrenal in autonomous cortisol secretion is not as severe as in Cushing syndrome, but the morbidity, uh, the spectrum of morbidity is pretty much the same. Uh, so these are patients who have excess risk of death. They can present with diabetes, uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia. They also have a very high uh, proportion of what are called um, low impact fractures. So for example, fractures of uh, the vertebrae. And it's estimated that as many as 50 to 80% of patients who have ACS will ultimately suffer a uh, vertebral fracture. Um, ACS is probably the most under-recognized condition in endocrinology. Um, we don't know for sure uh, but think that possibly as many as 97% of patients who have ACS don't know it. Uh, and there may be as many as 3 million of those in the US. Uh, the third condition or set of conditions uh, that for which we're developing drugs uh, is sometimes called exogenous Cushing's or uh, iatrogenic Cushing's. Uh, and that's a condition when people are given glucocorticoid medicines like prednisone. So those are medicines that actually mimic cortisol in the body, uh, but they're synthetic. Um, and they're used chronically for uh, the control of autoimmune disease, prevention of organ transplant rejection and other conditions. And they carry as side effects all of the same symptoms we just talked about of Cushing's and, and ACS. In fact, steer, the 
glucocorticoids or steroid medicines are responsible for over 10% of all reported drug side effects in the US and responsible for also more than 10% of drug-related hospitalizations in the US. So, and there are about 2 million patients who rely on, in the US, who rely on long-term use of, uh, of steroid medicines to control various medical conditions. So it's really, it's a lot bigger than just Cushing syndrome. Let, let's focus on Cushing syndrome for now. It strikes me that the manifestations of the condition can be somewhat general. How easy is it for a doctor to recognize a, a patient that actually has this and, and diagnose it correctly? It, it's not. Uh, and, and in fact, many patients go for years without a correct diagnosis uh, until it's ultimately determined that they have, uh, that they have Cushing syndrome. And a lot of damage can be done to their bodies uh, during that time. Um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, it's a pretty hard diagnosis to make. It's not very common. And um, a lot of physicians will never see a case of Cushing syndrome. Uh, and so they're not uh, necessarily attuned to think of that as the first thing. Um, there are uh, some, some outward physical manifestations. Uh, so uh, patients tend to have a very, tend to have a, a characteristic pattern of obesity. So a lot of central obesity and actually uh, thin limbs. Uh, they tend to have something called, they often have something called moon face, uh, which is just what it sounds like that, um, that the person's face looks like uh, those old, you know, cartoon, you know, sort of cartoon moons. Um, and uh, also things, uh, striae, which are uh, basically stripes, red, reddish purple stripes commonly along um, the abdomen. And so there are some physical signs uh, that uh, can make one think of Cushing's, but also it, you know, some of the initial damage may be um, diabetes and osteoporosis. And so um, those are sort of non-specific things. And, and a lot of people have them who don't have Cushing's. And is there a predictable progression to the condition? Um, so not really, no. Um, yeah, I, I think patients present in, in many different ways, uh, before they're diagnosed with Cushing's, um, and, and sometimes even the Cushing's is, is misdiagnosed. I, uh, spoke to one, uh, patient who, uh, initially was thought to have a Cushing's tumor on her uh, adrenal, which was removed. Um, and then it turned out that that was actually a secondary tumor to a tumor on her pituitary. And so basically she went through two sets of um, long periods of not being appropriately diagnosed because um, 
they, you know, they were thinking they really didn't understand, you know, what was going on with her after the tumor had been removed because removal of an adrenal tumor should be curative. What's it like to live with a condition? You'd really have to ask a patient that, but it, I mean, it just sounds um, like it can be quite, uh, quite unpleasant. Um, you know, there, everything from not being able to think straight, having mood swings, uh, being concerned about your appearance, uh, and then having um, your physician telling you, you know, oh, you're di- you know, you're diabetic, your bones are fragile. Um, you know, I'm having trouble controlling your hyper your high blood pressure. Um, and so I would imagine that there's going to be, you know, for a lot of people kind of constant worry about what's going to happen next. Does this ever end? When do I get off this roller coaster? Um, and those are actually things the, the Cushing Syndrome Research Foundation um, has done some, you know, has, has put out some work um, looking at what patients say. And, and those are all sorts of things that, that patients have said in, in their surveys. And, and how is the condition treated today? And what's the prognosis for someone with it? Well, so the first line of treatment is surgery. Um, and that is curative in about half of people. Um, but then the other half, either the tumor isn't completely excised, the tumor comes back. Um, and so then they go on to most commonly medical therapies, uh, sometimes radiation therapy is used as well. Um, and the medicines uh, that are used, there are basically three classes of medicines and they have all been around uh, for the treatment of Cushing's uh, for at least 35, 40 years. Um, and so uh, there are, somewhat better versions of those of each of those classes either uh, now on the market or or close to coming on the market assuming that they receive regulatory approval uh, but there really hasn't been a fundamentally new approach uh, to the disease for for 35 to 40 years and that's what sparrow potentially would bring to that particular group of patients what are the HSD-1 and HSD enzymes and what role do they play in the biology of corticosteroids? Yeah. So first of all, the, the test that I will give you at the end of this is HSD stands for 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. And I'll ask you to repeat that back to me at the end of the interview, if that's okay. Not um, a problem. Okay. Um, I so- can edit that in, right? <laughs> right. And, you, and say it three times fast. Um, so these are enzymes that control the levels of cortisol within your cell. Um, so traditionally, uh, cortisol is thought, as, thought of as a hormone that is something that, it, that acts at a distance. So 
in medical school, physicians learn cortisol is secreted from the adrenal, and then it goes throughout the body and it acts on, on various tissues. Um, that is only part of the story and maybe not even most of the story. So uh, there are some tissues in the body, uh, such as uh, the kidney, in which cortisol is acutely toxic. And so that those tissues contain an enzyme that inactivates cortisol. And that has a protective function. We, our drug doesn't touch that. That's called HSD2. HSD1, which is the target of our enzyme, converts the inactive form back to the active form in cells, within cells, in tissues such as liver, fat, eye, bone, brain, muscle, skin, where cortisol at normal levels have all those beneficial physiological functions that I talked about uh, at the very beginning. And in excess, they have those deleterious pathological uh, functions. And it turns out that uh, most of the regulation of cortisol that really matters is what happens through HSD1 because it's the cortisol that is formed and present within the cell uh, that can access the receptors for cortisol, which are also inside the cell. And so in a way we think of this as that cortisol is an, what's called an autocrine effector. That is it has action in the same cell in which it's made as opposed to an endocrine effector. And that perhaps uh, some physicians should be called autocrinologists rather than endocrinologists. Um, and there's quite a lot of evidence that for the supposition that, uh, that the intracellular cortisol is what's really important, is, is what's really important. And that includes um, that there are some uh, rare patients uh, who have both Cushing syndrome who had both Cushing syndrome and a natural deficit of HSD1. Um, and their Cushing syndrome was discovered entirely by accident because they were asymptomatic. So without or with substantially reduced HSD1 activity, um, they simply didn't have any symptoms of the disease that they had, but they had ragingly high levels of uh, circulating cortisol uh, and their tumors were found by imaging and removed surgically. And then both of them were fine. Um, what is, go ahead. Well, what is your lead experimental therapy SPI 62 and, and how does it work? Yeah. So it inhibits HSD one. So it blocks the formation of a lot of intracellular cortisol. Um, and so its net effect uh, is that when, um, when you give SPI 62, the amount of cortisol in the patient's cells goes down. Uh, we've actually demonstrated that directly uh, in liver. Uh, we've also demonstrated it indirectly uh, in both brain and uh, and fat, where we've measured 
uh, enzyme activity uh, or enzyme binding, uh, but actually haven't directly measured the, the consequent uh, decrement of cortisol levels, but we can infer it. What advantages might this approach have over other treatments that exist today? Yeah, well, so this gets into the realm of speculation, of course. Um, so, I mean, one, one thing is when you have a disease like Cushing syndrome or ACS or dealing with the side effects of steroids um, is that perhaps one approach doesn't fit all. And so we already see this in Cushing syndrome that patients um, frequently cycle between medicines uh, in part because uh, the medicines don't retain efficacy. Uh, also in part because a lot of the medicines, uh, all of the medicines that uh, are available for patients with Cushing's um, have some combination of being difficult to use or having substantial safety effects uh, themselves. Um, and we hope that, uh, that we can provide not only efficacy that's comparable to or perhaps better than uh, what's available on the market today, uh, but to do that with something that is better tolerated, uh, easier to use, um, and uh, perhaps more, um, more accessible to patients. So one of the things that um, all of the current drugs for Cushing's have as a liability is called adrenal insufficiency. And so that's what happens when the drugs um, control cortisol too well. Uh, and so then the patient has too little cortisol, which also uh, is not very, um, very consistent with life. Um, and particularly not with life after a shock to the system. So it's actually um, hypothesized. So uh, President Kennedy um, had primary uh, hypocortisolism, which is called Addison's disease. Um, and he was treated for that uh, for much of his life. Um, and it's hypothesized that he actually died so quickly after he was shot uh, because his body couldn't mount an adequate stress response uh, to, you know, to handle the shock to his system. Um, so, that, so that's a common issue for all uh, current Cushing's drugs. In our case, um, we, there's no way that you can get rid of all of the cortisol simply by inhibiting HSD1. So the other drugs, for example, uh, inhibit uh, the synthesis, the original synthesis of, of cortisol. So it's possible with those to get down pretty close to zero cortisol. Uh, other drugs that are used for Cushing's uh, inhibit the ability of um, cortisol to interact with its receptor, its main receptor. And so um, it is again there possible 
to overdo it and completely present, prevent cortisol from having any action, even though it's there. Ours, there's with HSD1 inhibition, there's always going to be a buffer of cortisol that remains. Uh, and so we hope that, uh, you know, and obviously this has to be proved in clinical trials that, that ours will be a drug uh, that doesn't carry risk of adrenal insufficiency. Um, and that would mean not only better safety for uh, patients, but also would mean a lot less of the intrusive monitoring that has to be done of current for the current therapies that are used uh, in, in Cushing syndrome. And what's known about the safety and efficacy of SPI 62 from studies that have been done to date? Yeah, so four clinical trials have been completed of SPI 62 uh, in a total of 165 people. Um, most of those were uh, healthy volunteers and, and elderly adults in general good health. Uh, some of them were patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, and generally, I mean, for, th for this stage of uh, development of a drug, uh, it has been associated with relatively few adverse events, and, and most of them have been mild in severity, um, the most common one being headache. And what's the development path forward? Um, so Sparrow's currently initiating three phase two clinical trials, uh, one in Cushing syndrome, one in autonomous cortisol secretion, and one in a disease called polymyalgia rheumatica, uh, which is the most common autoimmune disease of the elderly, a disease that can own, for which the only approved treatment is steroid medicines. Um, and it's also the number one uh, indication for long-term use of the steroid medicines. So there uh, in the first two were using SPI 62 by itself to reduce endogenous cortisol. Uh, in the last trial, we will uh, dose uh, SPI 62 together with a steroid where the idea is that we'll block the side effects of the steroid, but not the efficacy. At least that's the, that's the aspiration. Sparrow completed a $50 million Series A in May. How's that money being used and how far will it take you? Um, well, so it's paying my and my colleagues' salaries for one thing, and that's a nice, that's nice. Um, but mo mostly it's being used uh, for the clinical trials uh, as well as some uh, you know, associated activities like uh, animal studies that are needed to support the trials, manufacturing. Um, and that gives us runway uh, into, I think, 2024. David Katz, founder and chief scientific officer of Sparrow Pharmaceuticals. David, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. 
You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>